You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So the question was, um, does this, does that passage of punishments, etc., speak to heaven and hell? That's certainly one way of looking at it, right? So if you, um, if you don't, if your uh, experience of the world is that um, God doesn't punish the wicked and uh, vindicate the innocent, um, then there are there are really kind of two ways of dealing with that. Right? One, well, maybe more than two, but. Uh, one way is to say that, um, that uh, um, the reward for the righteous, the punishment of the wicked, is reserved for another time, right? That's the afterlife argument. And certainly, uh, despite the fact that everyone here learned in Hebrew school that Judaism doesn't believe in hell, um, I assure you that looking through the Talmud, it's very clear that at least a lot of Jews in history believed in heaven and hell, right? Uh, um, uh, certainly one very famous one believed in heaven and hell, but, uh, but, but lots of the rabbis of the Talmud did as well, and it's very easy to find. Um, so there's certainly Jews that believe that. Um, there are other ways of dealing with the problem, though, right? Um, you know, one way, of course, is, uh, is uh, to say that, uh, is to drop the um, need for God to be all-powerful, um, which is uh, the way to give away the game. Uh, for me, you can uh, fire me if you want, but I believe that God is not all-powerful. Um, we can talk about that another time. Uh, but there are other ways of dealing with it, too, right? So, you know, we, um, we uh, from our perspective, the wicked aren't punished and the uh, righteous aren't vindicated, but, uh, but we have a limited perspective and God has a different perspective. So there are other ways of dealing with the problem, but certainly the afterlife is one. Okay. Other questions or comments? Not on the question of whether God is all-powerful. We can save that for another time. <laughs> all right. Okay, so, what, so I mean, the, the, the verse that I really want to focus on is number 10, okay, which actually I think is not a great translation in the JPS translation. So if you look with me in the Hebrew at the bottom, if you're able to follow along, it's the very last line in the Hebrew. The text is, V'achalta v'savata uverachta et Adonai Elohecha al ha'arta tova asher natan lach. First of all, those Hebrew words, for those of you who are able to follow along with it, has anybody heard those Hebrew words before? And if so, where? Say, can you say more than that? Just, good, yeah, right. I just wanted, because uh, for some people, birkat is a buzzword. For other people, birkat is not a buzzword. So I just want to make sure everybody knew, right. So birkat amazon, right, the blessing after uh, meals um, contains those words, right, um, uh, that, uh, that you should, uh, um, and so the English translates it as, when you have eaten your fill, give thanks to the Lord your God, right, containing only one commandment, right, which is uverachta, uh, you should bless, right? If you look at the Hebrew of it, you have three verbs in the same conjugation in rapid-fire succession, which strikes me as maybe this has classically been read wrong, and it's actually giving you three commandments there, right? So we definitely have uverachta, you should bless God, but you have two other commandments. The first is ve'achalta, you should eat. Second, vesavata, you should be satisfied. And then the third is uverachta, you should be, uh, you should bless. Okay? So that's, that to me, on one foot, is the Deuteronomy diet. 
right? You sh I'll tell you what each of those mean, I think, um, but those are the three. That's the commandment, that's the diet. Eat, be satisfied, and bless. Okay, so here's what I mean by that. Um, let's take the first one, eat. Okay, that seems like an obvious one, um, except for a couple of things. First is, what most of us do in America is not eat. We ingest, okay? Um, you probably do this just the same as I do, and I mean it on a number of different levels, right? So, you know, we have very busy lives, we have a lot to do, so we grab a, this is what I did yesterday, right? I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, right? Um, I was like running between appointments, I'm like, oh, it's, you know, past lunchtime, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm gonna just stop in the convenience store and get a candy bar, right? Right? We, we, that's not eating, that's ingesting. I need some calories, my stomach is empty, right? And, and, that's, uh, and that tastes good, and so I'm just gonna, you know, shovel it in, right? That's what I'm gonna do. So that's not eating, that's ingesting. But the other way that we ingest um, is that for, I'd say, the past 40 to 50 years or so, um, we've, in America, stopped thinking of food as food, and have thought of it more as a delivery system for nutrients, right? So we actually tend not to think of food, many of us, not, we wouldn't think of this consciously, but on a subconscious level, a lot of us don't think of food as, as food, but think of it almost more like medicine, right? And I know there's a saying, let, let food be thy medicine, right? And that's a good thing, right? That's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is, what we say is, okay, the, the nutritional science says that you need, you know, a certain amount of this vitamin and you need a certain amount of this protein and, you know, you look at the nutritional labels on, uh, on the food that you buy and then, you know, it's like 15% of your daily uh, 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 intake of protein and you need, like, you know, this cereal only gives you 10% of your vitamin A, so either you need to eat 10 bowls of the cereal or you need to, like, go somewhere else that has vitamin A. Right, so, we, so we've been trained to look at food as delivery systems for these, for these nutrients. Now, nutrients are important, um, and when it's constructed in that way, it sounds right because we're trained, and I think appropriately so in a lot of contexts, to, um, to trust sciencey sounding things. And there is science behind, uh, behind nutrition. After all, there's nutritional science. But there's a, a flaw in that way of understanding what food does. The flaw is this. Um, science is at its best when it can isolate uh, variables, right? When it, can, when it can study one thing and the impact of one thing, right? So we can say that, um, that people who eat X amount of vitamin A a day tend to have lower levels of Y disease, right? Um, which is great, except for the fact that, um, that we aren't studying in that study how vitamin A impacts whether or not we have the likelihood of getting Z disease or, or A disease or D disease, right? Um, and we also don't know whether or not vitamin A interacting with other kinds of vitamins and other kinds of nutrients uh, uh, um, is, has positive or negative impacts on our uh, ability to live a certain amount of years or, uh, or get um, a, a, a certain disease or, or something like that. Um, that's part of the problem of nutritional science is that it, it, in, in isolating variables, you're dealing with two very complex things, food and human physiology, 
right, which are two complex things, and the interaction of food and human physiology, especially among different humans and, uh, and different kinds of food, um, and the interactions of different food are, um, um, uh, are comp is a complex thing, right? a very complex phenomenon. And, and science doesn't do as well, scientific research doesn't do as well with a lot of variables and complex phenomena like that. Right. So here's what, I, I just want to read what uh, what Michael Pollan says here because I love the way he says it. It's a rather long quote, but but it's it's just um, I tried to cut it down, but it's uh, it's just all great. So here's what he says. Um, actually, maybe someone else can uh, can can read this for us. Uh, number one at the bottom of page one goes on to page two. Who's got a good voice? Okay, once food was all you could eat. But today, there are lots of other edible food-like substances in the supermarket. These novel products of food science often come in packages that in with health claims, which brings me to a related rule of thumb. If you're concerned about your health, you should probably avoid food products that make health claims. Why? Because a health claim on a food product is a good indication that it's really not food, and food is what you want to eat. <laughs> so let's just pause it for a second, right? How, how many of you have ever felt this way in the super? There's so many things in the supermarket, right? And so few of them are actually food, right? If you look at the ingredients, and you know, I mean, you can make an argument, okay, you, you look at the ingredients, and it's like derivatives of food, or like it's like fancy scientific names. No, you know, like the, the like 18-syllable word, you know, for some uh, um, compound that was created in a lab might be food-derived. Right, but it is not technically speaking food, right? And so there's lots of things in the supermarket. This is the omnivore slumber. We have lots of things in the supermarket, right? Only some of them are actually food, and increasing amounts are uh, are are not. It seems like. Okay, go ahead. It was in the 19th. Oh, let me just say, and and like what he says here, you know, if something has uh, uh, um, uh, avoid food products that make health claims, right? That's really true. You, it's hard to. Slap a you know a big slick health claim on a head of broccoli, right? It's much easier to do so on a box of granola bars or cereal or something like that. And yet, any of us, anybody with common sense knows that broccoli is healthier for you than a granola bar. And yet, it's tricky because the granola bar is telling you how healthy it is, right? Um, so that's the problem. Yeah, go ahead. It was in the 1980s that food began disappearing from the American supermarket, gradually to be replaced by nutrients, which are not the same thing. But once the familiar names of recognizable comestibles, things like eggs, or breakfast cereal, or cookies, claim pride of place on the brightly colored packages crowding the aisles. Now new terms like fiber, cholesterol, saturated fat rose to large type prominence most important than mere foods, the presence or absence of these invisible substances was now generally believed to confer health benefits on their eaters. Foods, by comparison, were coarse, old-fashioned, and decidedly unscientific things. Who could say what was in them, really? But nutrients. That's true. You can't. You don't have a nutritional. You don't have an ingredient list on an egg, right? Uh, so it's it's. If I'm gonna, t I don't know what's healthy for me, right? And I can look at a at, a, at you know a, a Dan and yogurt, and I can see all the ingredients listed out on it, right? A lot of them are high fructose corn syrup, but I could see the list of ingredients on it, right? Or some version of it. 
Um, and an egg doesn't tell me what's in it, right? Um, uh, he's being a little cheeky there, but, um, uh, and most of us don't go through the supermarket thinking that, but in a way, if you are really honest with yourself, we've kind of been conditioned to think that way, right? We go for the things that we can see what's in it, even though often what's in it is a little bit deceptive. Go ahead. That's very true. But nutrients, those chemical compounds and minerals and foods that nutritionists have deemed important to health, lean with the promise of scientific certainty, eat more of the right ones, fewer of the wrong, and you can live longer and avoid chronic diseases. Scientific reductionism is an undeniably powerful tool, but it can lead it, mislead us too, especially when applied to something as complex as on the one side of food and on the other side of human eater. It encourages us to make a mechanistic view of that transaction. Put in this nutrient, get out that physiological result. Yet, people differ in important ways. Some populations can metabolize sugars better than others, depending on your evolutionary heritage. You may or may not be able to digest the lactose in milk. The specific ecology of your intestines helps determine how efficiently you digest what you eat, so that the same input of 100 calories may yield more or less energy depending on the proportion of Firmicutes and bacterioidentes living in your guts. Is that? No, 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 no. It's F-I-R-M-I-C-U-T-E-S. Firmicutes. Firmicutes. They sound adorable. I know what it is. It comes from the atomic scientist Fermi that actually had to do with, you know, through atomic radiation, they invented new elements, and so that's why he's saying these cutesy things. Fermi cutes. And bacterioides living in your gut. There's nothing very machine-like about the human eater. And so, to think of food as simply fuel is wrong. Also, people don't eat nutrients, they eat foods. And foods can behave very differently than the nutrients they complain they contain. So try this. Don't eat anything your great great grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. <laughs> Sorry, but at this point moms are as confused as the rest of us. Which is why we have to go back a couple of generations to a time before the advent of modern food products. There are great many food like items in the supermarket your ancestors wouldn't recognize as food. Gogurt? Breakfast cereal bars, non-dairy Kramer, stay away from these. Yeah. <laughs> All right. he, he clearly uh, never needed to go to like a, a, a flaschic meal where you had coffee at the end of it. So, uh, but <laughs> yeah. This discussion reminds me of two things. The first one is all the stories about uh, about people who visit Jewish homes on on the Sabbath and they ask what's so delicious about this meal, and the answer is love. Yeah. So it's it's always better to it's always better to eat a meal prepared by someone who loves to cook than right. someone who hates to cook. Yeah. And the second thing is uh, I'm reminded in this discussion of a an article I read some years ago in either Newsweek or Time that um, the French government, which which prepares meals, which specifies the luncheon menus for for all its school children starting in kindergarten and K 
kindergarten meals and up in French schools are prepared by what we would call four or five star chefs. Mm. And wow. From, from kindergarten on, French children uh, learn that uh, food is a very serious business and it's not to be dismissed lightly. And you cannot come to a table in kindergarten and eat a meal, even in a French school, even in kindergarten. You cannot come in and have food served to you until you're properly seated at the table mm -hmm. and in a receptive mood to eat what's put in front of you. That's great. It was a great article. Yeah, and, and that reminds me of you know what uh, what some people call the French paradox, right? Which is that French people are somehow able to eat all sorts of uh, rich and delicious foods, and yet uh, by and large not have the same levels of obesity uh, and uh, obesity related illnesses as Americans. So Michael Pollan addresses that in one of his books. He says, "Yeah." My problem is that my great great grandmother probably liked ribbonus. Yep. No, so great. <laughs> I understand. I understand. I understand. Um, but but here's the thing about uh, gribbonus and schmaltz, okay? Way more healthy for you than margarine in a certain sense, right? So that's, uh, um, um, so that's important to know. So the, the French paradox is exactly, is exactly this and, and what your great-grandmother maybe knew. My, my grandmother, who cooked with all that stuff too, didn't really uh, know, but she was already corrupted by America. Um, what your great-great-grandparents probably knew, um, and what French people seem to know better than we do, is that uh, so they don't approach food as a, as a collection of nutrients. Because right? if you look at what French people eat by its nutrient content, um, uh, they should be balloons, right? But they're not. And part of the reason is their, is their attitude and their approach to food, and we'll get to that later. Part of it is the quantity of food that they eat, right, uh, which we'll also get to later. So, and, that's a, and that's a related issue of, uh, of, you know, say to yourself, well, you know, vitamin C is good for you, so just eat all the oranges that you want, right? And Americans love being told you can eat as much as you want of something, right? Um, so that's, um, so part of, part of uh, uh, what, what, what Pollan points out, his, part of his argument, which I found convincing, um, is that, uh, 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 we'll look at this actually in a second. Uh, well, actually, we, we might as well go on to this. So, we'll go on to this, okay? So, yes? You know, part of the deal about the French is that they get a lot more exercise. That's also true, yeah, yeah, right. There's a lot of walking, bicycle riding, yeah. that's true. Red wine. Yeah. Red wine, yes. And red wine, yes. Drink more red wine. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and so if I, were to, if I were to create a fourth commandment of this Deuteronomy diet, I would add exercise to it. Um, although, you know, he, Moses was talking to people who had just been walking for 40 years. So, uh, so, they, so they may not have felt like they needed it, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So the, so the, issue, so the issue of eating is more than just, um, I think, eating food. It's also what kind of foods that, that we eat, right? So not first of all, that, that we should eat and that we should eat real food, but also what kind of foods that, that we should eat is also important. Um, so you have in the text itself listed out for you a list of, uh, of, of the foods that are, are suggested as the kind of foods that we ought to eat. So look back at the, at the text. What, what do we have uh, uh, in the land of Israel? A land of streams and springs and fountains issuing from plain and hill. So what does that mean? Water. water, good. Drink water. Drink water. Coffee is okay from time to time too, but drink water. Okay. Um, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, figs, and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. Okay. What kind of foods are on that list, and what kind of foods are not on that list? 
Good. So, okay, so first let's go, what's, what's, what's on the list? Can you categorize for me what's on the list? Fruits, vegetables, grains, good, whole grains, good. And what's not on the list? Meat is not on the list. What else is not on the list? Sugar. is not, they didn't really have processed sugar. They have honey here. Honey is way healthier for you than sugar, especially if it's in moderation. And we tend to eat a ton of sugar. So, um, uh, uh, sugar. Um, bread's not on the list, although it does have wheat and barley. Um, and one might imagine that the way that they produced and consumed bread in the ancient world is very different than the way that we produce and consume bread today. Their bread was probably closer to very, um, uh, very coarse uh, uh, whole grain bread. Uh, they didn't have a process of uh, enriching or bleaching uh, flour, uh, except for maybe very wealthy people um, in the same way that we do. So their orientation to those grains is different than our orientation to those grains. Um, they also, well, you know, your, your, um, your, uh, the amount of bread that you eat is different if you have to go through the process of harvesting the wheat uh, and milling the flour yourself, right? Um, it's different than just going to the store and buying Wonder Bread. So they are talking about bread here or grains, um, but, their, but their consumption of it, I think, was different. But you don't have meat on this list. You don't have dairy on this list, which is interesting. What? Fish. No fish on this list. Right. Now, I don't think that this list is meant to be, these are the only things that you can eat. Right? But I think, so I, th I think it is saying two things. One, that your diet should consist primarily of these things. Right? It's not saying it's forbidden to eat other kinds of things. It would, Torah has no problem saying when things are forbidden. Right? So it would tell you <laughs> if something is forbidden. Right? Here it doesn't say that it's forbidden. It just says these are the good things to eat. So you should, I, I take that to mean that your diet should consist primarily of these types of things. It also, this, this piece of it may not be totally sustainable, but it's in, uh, important uh, and, and there's a growing um, awareness of this that um, that there is an indigenous and local food culture that it's talking about here, right? And there's something, um, uh, that it, um, there's growing research to suggest that when you eat the, when you eat produce that is seasonal and local, um, people who eat that way tend to be healthier than people who um, eat produce that's not seasonal and shipped from all over the place, right? So, um, and we have that, right? So it's hard to avoid in the supermarket. You go to the supermarket and like you're, you know, in, uh, in, in Richmond, you're getting oranges in January, okay? Well, that shouldn't be, right? But, uh, but nevertheless, that's, that's what we get. Um, so there is, I think, uh, an ethic here of, um, of eating what's around you and when it's around you, right? <laughs> Only on December 25th. Right? That's a little bit later in the Torah, but it says it there. Okay, so, um, but Chinese food is a really good example. Okay, the Chinese food because the Chinese don't eat the way Chinese food in America is, right? Um, uh, the 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 traditional Chinese diet is is actually very seasonal and very local, primarily vegetables, right? And some and seafood too. Um, so seafood's not on this list, but uh, um, it, um, it was probably not written by, uh, um, well, Moses never went to the Mediterranean coast, so he didn't know. So, um, okay. Um, so that's important. And, and by the way, we looked at uh, Genesis chapter 1 a few weeks ago. Um, a little bit later, um, the first human beings are told what they're allowed to eat of creation. 
Um, and again, what they're told is that they are allowed to eat vegetables and fruit. Right? The only thing that they're told not to eat uh, is the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which of course they do. Now, they're not expressly forbidden from eating meat there, but a lot of scholars look at the text to say, um, actually the, the, uh, the intended way for human beings to eat was vegetarian. Um, the permission to eat meat, which you get um, after Noah's flood in that story, was a concession to human um, aggression and bloodthirst. Um, I think that the I think that the Torah, uh, by the there's 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 a lot written about this. Um, that uh, um, it seems like, uh, depending on your read of the Torah, that the only animals that were supposed to be killed for food or otherwise were uh, to be killed in the temple, so you could only eat meat if it was connected to ritual sacrifice, um, and otherwise you couldn't slaughter and, uh, and eat your own meat elsewhere in the land of Israel. So it seems to me that the thrust of the Torah, and in particular this passage, is advocating for a primarily, at least, vegetarian diet. Um, and I know that's, that's pretty radical for, uh, for 21st century, uh, it would have been more radical in the 20th century, but 21st century Americans uh, to hear because so much of our diet is uh, based off of meat and meat ends up being the, you know, the centerpiece of most of our meals. Um, uh, when in, in, in actuality from both, a, I think, an ethical perspective and a health perspective, it should be more of a rarity and more of a side dish. Maimonides even goes so far as to say is if you're not prepared to uh, slaughter your own animals, you shouldn't be allowed to eat meat. Um, that's, that's the ethical side of it. The, the health side of it is, is pretty clear. So if you go to the second passage from Michael Pollan here, um, he brings up, a, a, I think, a, a really worthwhile piece of history to consider. So can I get a volunteer to read number two? Responding to an alarming increase in chronic diseases linked to diet, including heart disease, cancer, and diabetes, a Senate Select Committee on Nutrition, headed by George McGovern, held hearings on the problem and prepared what by all rights should have been an uncontroversial document called Dietary Goals for the United States. The committee learned that while rates of coronary heart disease had soared in America since World War II, other cultures that consume traditional diets based largely, largely on plants had strikingly low rates of chronic disease. Epidemiologists also had observed that in America during the war years, when meat and dairy products were strictly rationed, the rate of heart disease temporarily plummeted. Naively putting two and two together, the committee drafted a straightforward set of dietary guidelines calling on Americans to cut down on red meat and dairy products. Within weeks, a firestorm emanating from the red meat and dairy industries engulfed the committee, and Senator McGovern, who had a great many cattle ranchers among his South Dakota constituents, was forced to beat a retreat. The committee's recommendations were hastily rewritten. Plain talk about food, the committee had advised Americans to actually reduce consumption of meat, was replaced by artful compromise. Choose meats, poultry, and fish that will reduce saturated fat intake. In the end, the biggest, most ambitious, and widely reported studies of diet and health leave more or less undisturbed the main features of the Western diet. 
lots of meat and processed foods, lots of added fat and sugar, lots of everything except fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. Scientists may disagree on what's so good about plants, the antioxidants, fiber, omega-3s, but they do agree that they're probably really good for you and certainly can't hurt. Also, by eating a plant-based diet, you'll be consuming far fewer calories since plant foods, except seeds, are typically less energy dense than the other things you might eat. Vegetarians are healthier than carnivores, but near-vegetarians, flexitarians, are as healthy as vegetarians. Thomas Jefferson was onto something when he advised treating meat more as a flavoring than as a food. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, um, it's pretty striking when, when, when you think about it. I mean, and in fact, I mean, um, Bill Clinton is a really good example of this. You know, after he had his uh, heart episode, um, he became a vegan. And you know, to see Bill Clinton today versus Bill Clinton in the 90s is you know, dramatic how much healthier and vigorous he looks um, after switching to... Now, that's not universally true, right? Not every... It, First of all, it's, it's easy to you know, eat a lot of junk food if you're a vegan. I was vegan for a little while in my life, and I ate a lot of junk food. Um, but, uh, um, so not everybody who's vegan is, is healthy, but theoretically, a plant-based diet where you're actually eating real foods um, should be uh, uh, more healthy for most people than, uh, than a meat-based diet. Um, now, the, the one point that he raised leads, I think, very nicely into the second commandment in the Deuteronomy diet, which is visavata, you should be satisfied. So, um, uh, um, Pollen talks about uh, how the plain talk of the committee was to eat less stuff, uh, and, uh, and if you eat vegetables, you tend to, eat, to consume fewer calories. And, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if you eat fewer calories, you'll tend to, uh, um, to uh, have less risk of obesity, right? Um, uh, and you'll probably be healthier too. Um, the problem is that um, most of us have challenges with that second commandment, I think. I certainly do, which is visavata, you should be satisfied. How I understand that is um, that we don't really know when we're full. Okay, and I'll just give you, my wife is really good. My wife, I don't know how she does this, okay? She'll, like, be in a restaurant, and we'll be eating, you know, a delicious uh, dinner, and she'll put her knife and fork down at a certain point, and there'll be, like, you know, a quarter or a half of her dish left, and she'll say, oh, man, I am so full. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm still, like, face down in my plate, not coming up for air until all the pasta is gone off my plate, right? I don't really know. I know what hungry feels like, right? And I know what um, so stuffed you're going to fall over feels like, but I'm not always so sure what full feels like. My wife isn't really able to do this. Um, so, but this, I think, is the commandment, and, and, and I think that uh, um, it, uh, it, it strikes me that people who are able to only eat as much as they need to not be hungry anymore tend to uh, have healthier lifestyles and live longer and have fewer chronic diseases than people who struggle with, uh, with, with eating until they're full. Maimonides in the Mishnah Torah, in, the, uh, in his Code of Jewish Law, um, says this in Law of Virtue. So look at number three. He said, a person should only eat when he is hungry. Okay, so that means... 
not eating when you're bored, right, and not eating in, like, social situations. Those are really hard, right? When I go to a cocktail party, even if I'm not hungry, and I'm sitting and I'm eating, you know, the, the cocktail weenies and whatever, right? right? Uh, or if I'm, you know, sitting around the house and the, there's, you know, nothing to, nothing to do and there's, you know, I'm just, like, vegging in front of the TV and I'm eating chips because that's just what you do, right? Maimonides says, no, a person should only eat when he or she is hungry and he or she shouldn't eat Sorry, he or she should not eat until his, his or her belly is stuffed. Rather, he or she should stop eating when he or she is three-quarters full. Three-quarters. Could you imagine? I, I have trouble with it. Um, I, I try, but I have trouble with it. Stopping to eat when you're three-quarters full. What would that take to stop eating when you're three-quarters full? Willpower. Okay, what else would it take? It would take the enjoyment. No, see, I actually do. I actually am not sure if that's true. I think. Uh, I think that uh, um, part of. So what? I, one of the things that I was thinking of what what it would take is eating slower, right? And if you eat slower, you actually might enjoy it more. Um, uh, you know, I. I, uh, um, I and you might enjoy it more because you might not be hurting at the end of the meal, right? That's that's the problem that I have. Um, but I think that that's a big part of it is eating slower. Yeah. Get yourself in tune with your body. Yeah. And I used to eat enough to keep two or three people alive. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. weigh as much as I do now. Back when I was young, and my grandfather said, Young, you eat so much, you get poor carrying it around. But eating a well balanced diet, plenty of fruits and vegetables, meat and starch, and but it's tuning yourself to your body's needs, and you don't have to have willpower. You become attuned to when you're full, and it just it takes it's practice. It's not that easy. He's more like your wife in, <laughs> yeah. in that he knows when he's had enough and he stops eating. Yeah. No. Yeah. Is it long as it's still tasting good? That's right. That doesn't say That's I can't overeat now right. again. Right. No, I, th- I think some people are naturally better at this than other people. And so what Maimonides, this is very classic Maimonides, because Maimonides is all about the power, the, the power of the will, right? Um, and I'm sure that Maimonides, uh, well, I'm not sure, because I wasn't there, but uh, I, I imagine that he had similar struggles, right? And so Maimonides thinks that lots, there's lots that humans can accomplish and should accomplish by, uh, by being very disciplined and exercising their will. This is one of them, yeah. Um, I've always read that part uh, of Deuteronomy as when you talk about being satisfied is not physical satisfaction. But I've always, until tonight, when you introduced the the calorie aspect of it, I always took that part to mean you should eat and be grateful for the meal you just had. You should appreciate that you have the meal and it was a good meal and be satisfied in it psychological sense rather than physical sense. So I love that. I think that that's the third thing, okay? The uve rachta, but I'll get there in a second, but that's a bit, that, but I think that if you, if you're, I think that's part of the reason that the JPS translation, which is the translation I gave you, translates it the way it does is sort of one fluid idea because I think they're, they're seeing savata in the same way that you are, which is you should have a, 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 a spiritual, heart. right, a grateful heart about it, yeah. But I don't know the Hebrew. Does the Hebrew imply more the physical so the, the, piece the, of it or uh, it, it seems to me that it's talking physically. Is, oh, so, okay. so vea is to be is to be full. Um, yeah, to be sated, right? Um, 
but I think it could easily be. And, 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 and to me, you have these three verbs, one after the other, that, that, are, that are all conjugated like they are uh, imperatives, right? So they're, they're three different things. Um, and to me, verachta, you should bless, carries with it that grateful quality. So we'll talk about that in a second. David, you? Also, in ancient communities, food supplies were limited. True. Yeah, uh, that's also true, um, and we, we don't have, at least in, in most of the places, thank God, where we live, have, a, have similar problems of, uh, of scarcity, but that changes your orientation to food, too. But look at this, so remember what Maimonides says, you should eat until you're 75% full. Okay, there is a, a, I don't know how many of you have heard of this, there is a, a, a Japanese tradition called harahachibu. Who has heard of that? Okay, harahachibu means belly 80% Full, okay. Eighty percent to seventy-five percent is uh, is pretty close, and so it seems to me that there are two ancient traditions here that are uh, that are both basically articulating the same thing. So look at number four. The Japanese practice something that makes such sense that I can't believe we don't start teaching this to our kids. It's called harahachibu, which it means eat until you are eighty percent full. You've probably heard about the Okinawan people and how they often live to a hundred. They're the longest-lived, healthiest people on the planet, and they practice harahachibu. Of course, it helps to eat healthy food as well, but simply learning to eat until you're 80% full would do wonders for us Americans. Okay, so you, now you not only have Maimonides saying it, but you have, uh, but you have ancient Japanese wisdom saying it as well. Um, and uh, and uh, it, it takes a lot of um, uh, strength and discipline. Um, I think eating slower is a big piece of it as well. Um, but, uh, but, but here you have, and I think that that's what the, part of what the Torah is getting at here. But, the, um, but Americans, listen to this. Americans, the U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates that the average American adult consumes about 2,700 calories per person per day, which is several hundred calories more than active, healthy, weighing adults ought to consume. Those extra calories, unless burned with proper exercise, which most Americans don't do, can lead to gaining about a pound each a week, about a pound each week. Between the years 1970 and 2000, Americans' average daily calorie intake, and by the way, I remember 1970, give or take, was around the time of that McGovern Commission that, that uh, made adjusted um, uh, recommendations for the American diet. Um, uh, between 1970 and 2000, Americans' average daily calorie intake increased by about 500 calories a person. Not surprisingly, this time period roughly corresponds to the rise of our country's obesity epidemic, which is today one of America's top killers. And so I think that that's, what's that? It does take a little while for food to settle. Yes, it does, exactly. And that's why it's a good idea to stop before you're really full. Right, right, right. Um, I find that to be the case with me so often. I eat really fast, and I finish everything that's on my plate. My grandmother used to have the clean plate club, right? And you'd only get the reward for that was dessert, so you had to clean your plate, right? And so I would, you know, from an early age, you, you eat until what's on your plate is done, and you, the best way to do that is to eat it fast, right? Um, and the, the reason the best way to do that is to eat fast because eventually you realize if you eat slow that you're, that you're full quicker. Um, okay, now let's look at the, so those are the first two things, right? Achalta, uh, you should eat, right? And there are certain uh, parameters that, that, uh, for, that, for the definition of that word. Visavata, you should be satisfied, right? So um, um, you shouldn't overeat, right? You should eat only when you're hungry and until you're not hungry anymore. And then the third one, which uh, um, I think is a, a really important component to this, is uverachta, you should bless. 
I think that that's talking about um, having a grateful approach to eating. So I'll give you a story. When I was a teenager, um, I was on a, a cross-country trip called USY on Wheels. Um, and incredible experience. Um, but I wasn't crazy about the food that they served us on USY on Wheels. Well, you know, a lot of peanut butter jelly sandwiches and things like that. So every time we were at a rest stop, I would like load up on whatever I could like carry in my arms, right? Ice cream, potato, whatever. What I like load up, whatever, and then whatever I could like fit in the like area around my seat, um, because I wasn't sure where my next meal was coming from, um, and I wanted to make sure I didn't go hungry. Right? That I think is the opposite approach that the Torah is taking. Not to not to orient yourself to food as. Um, how can I make sure to get more, more, more? But how can I be grateful for what it is I do have? Right? And it turns out that the latter approach is a healthier way of eating. When your approach to your food is gratitude for what it is that you're eating, rather than constant concern and usually unfounded concern about, for most of us, thank God, about where our next meal is coming from, um, we tend to enjoy our food more, appreciate our food more, and uh, be satisfied with less of it. Um, so that's why the Maimonides, uh, by the way, just by uh, virtue of uh, just knowing the law around this, Maimonides points out that uh, this is the commandment uh, that's at least one commandment that's in this verse. It's a positive commandment from the Torah to recite a blessing after each meal. Um, as it says, and you will eat and be satisfied and bless the Lord your God for the good land that God has given you. And it's a law from the sages to recite a blessing over any food first and then only afterward to benefit from it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. Um, which, which I think is also a, a change in approach and outlook to food, right? If you, right, it's not, it's, it, it, it's not mine, mine, gimme, gimme. It's this belongs to somebody else. So you got to pause for a second and think about what it is that you're doing and ask permission to eat it first. Um, but, the, but, but I think both blessings before and blessing after are an expression of, uh, of, of gratitude, right, of uh, non-entitlement. Um, uh, you know, I don't always like to think of blessings that way because the Jewish tradition has a lot of words for thank you uh, and bar- bracha or, or barach is not one of them. Um, but it does seem, I think, what the text is getting at here is that, um, is that we should bless God for the food we're eating um, because um, we're not necessarily entitled to it. We have, a, we, we, we have the permission to take it but we're not entitled to it, and, um, and, and we should practice gratitude for it. So, and gratitude is not just fluff. So look at number six. I think it's, this is important. Cultivating an attitude of gratitude has been linked to better health, sounder sleep, less anxiety, and depression. Higher long-term satisfaction with life and kinder behavior toward others, including romantic partners. A new study shows that feeling grateful makes people less likely to turn aggressive when provoked. Right? Um, so th- this is, uh, and uh, go back, I mean, you can look up this article. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, I think, a nicely researched article, even though it's short. Um, the growing scientific consensus is that this kind of outlook to your life, practicing gratitude, um, is, has, has uh, really noticeable health benefits. And having that approach to the food that we eat has noticeable health benefits too because it changes 
um, how, we, how we see our food and how we consume our food um, and our feelings while we're eating our food as well. So I think when it's all considered, these are the, uh, and by the way, the, the, the text, that if you remember the context of the text that we're looking at, it talks a lot about um, what happens to you when you start, uh, uh, start you know, eating until your belly's full, you have a very successful uh, uh, life. There's a spiritual corrosion that can happen when you start looking at your life as, ah, I, I did all this. This is all mine, right? I'm, I, I, this is, I, I built it, right? Um, to borrow a phrase from uh, the um, current political climate, right? Um, so what, the, what, what this is trying to tell you is that in a certain sense, yeah, you built it. You grew the crop. You, you earned the money to buy it. But in another sense, you didn't. It's not necessarily yours. And so I think that, that, uh, that the, that the uh, outlook and approach to taking food from the world is different when it's not yours and when you think of it uh, exclusively as yours. So here you have a text that I think has been uh, classically understood as giving us one commandment, which is to say birkat hamazon after we eat our food, which is a good commandment. But in reality, I think it's actually giving us um, powerful insight into how we can um, eat and live in much healthier ways, right? The achalta, you should eat, uh, but know that eating means eating and not ingesting, right? Eating means eating food, and eating means eating primarily certain kinds of foods. Visavata, uh, you should be satisfied. You should eat when, only when you're hungry and only until you're not hungry anymore. Uverachta, you should eat with uh, an attitude of, uh, of gratefulness and, and of gratitude. We live in a, in a culture um, where um, lots of people struggle with this issue. Right? 30% of the American adult population struggles with obesity, uh, and more than one-third of children and adolescents are overweight and, or obese. And the, it's not just a cosmetic concern, right? O- obesity dramatically increases risks for heart disease, type 2 diabetes, stroke, and cancers. And obesity-related re- illnesses are among the top killers of Americans, right? This is not, um, this is not just, you know, um, I-, I wish I looked better in a bathing suit. We all might, but uh, um, this is a this is a life and death issue, and what the Torah is offering here is, I think, um, a, a pretty solid way forward for us, but also for us, very countercultural. Right, everything that the Torah just uh, laid out um, goes up against the prevailing ethic in our society today when it comes to food, which is to ingest to ingest uh, as many calories or without really uh, um, a sensibility about how much you're consuming um, or what you're consuming, um, as long as it has a shiny packaging and tastes uh, sweet or salty, uh, and, um, and um, to have an attitude toward food that's one of, uh, of uh, abundance and entitlement. And instead, the Torah is offering almost the entirely opposite approach to eating, and I think it's one that uh, um, we would be wise to consider for ourselves. I know that I strive to. Um, you don't always hit the mark, but uh, I think that uh, if we even made uh, efforts to, we would see noticeable results. Um, so thank you very much, and I'm happy to continue the conversation.